from NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. Last week's Supreme Court decisions will affect millions of Americans, and they could also sway voters in the 2024 elections. And Hollywood writers are already on strike. Now with AI on the rise, actors are planning their next move. Plus, we talked to the Idris Elba about his new show, Hijack, and taking his fans along for the ride. I have a very loyal audience because people that love Stringer Bell be like, I'm waiting for my new Stringer Bell, but they stay with me. And I take them through all kinds of journeys. They're like, I didn't like him in that, but I love him in this. It's Sunday, July 2nd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Two people are dead and 28 wounded, three in critical condition, after a shooting early this morning in Baltimore. NPR's Matthew Elgio has more. Police say the shooting occurred at a block party. They say the motive is unknown, but Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott says the shooting shows the need for new gun laws. It again highlights uh, the, the impacts and the need to deal with the overproliferation of illegal guns on our streets uh, and the ability for those who should not have them to get their hands on them. The mayor called the shooting a cowardly act and asked for anyone with information to contact police. Baltimore Acting Police Commissioner Rich Worley called the crime scene extensive and said there are currently no suspects. Matthew Algio, NPR News. Police in France have made more than 700 arrests during a fifth night of protests. The unrest began last week after the police killing of a teenager. Meanwhile, a man near Paris has accused protesters there of carrying out an assassination attempt. The BBC's Hugh Schofield reports. There were some disturbances, notably in Marseille, Nice and Strasbourg, but not like on previous nights. In the Brittany city of Brest, a car dealership was set ablaze. And in the Paris suburb of La Ile Rose, attackers in a car ram-raided the home of the mayor, forcing his wife and children to flee. She was taken to hospital. There were calls on social media for people to gather on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. But police were out in force. They made a number of arrests and confiscated equipment used in riots, and the situation remained under control. The hope is that this marks a turning point, that rioters are losing energy thanks to the security crackdown and the massive unpopularity of their exactions. But until more nights of quiet confirm the trend, no one is assuming anything. The BBC's Hugh Schofield. Spain has assumed the rotating presidency of the European Union. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez visited Kyiv today. He assured President Volodymyr Zelensky the EU will support Ukraine in its fight against Russia as long as it takes. CIA Director William Byrne says the war in Ukraine has presented the CIA with a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Villa Marx has more. In a lecture to a British think tank, the Ditchley Foundation, Byrne said the CIA was taking advantage of the situation to swell the agency's ranks with informants. The conflict that's killed thousands of Russian soldiers and ravaged the country's economy was, Byrne said, an opportunity to recruit disaffected Russians as spies. Speaking days after the Wagner Group's brief-lived rebellion in southern Russia, the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow said it would remain a vivid reminder of the war's, quote, corrosive effect that will, quote, continue to gnaw away at the Russian leadership. For an agency that relies heavily on such disaffection, he said, quote, we're not letting it go to waste. For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara will face charges after a car crash that required her son to get stitches. The Boston Globe reports that a police report indicates that Lara was driving with a revoked license and was driving an unregistered and uninsured car with an expired inspection sticker. The Globe also says the Department of Children and Families was notified about the crash because a police officer noted that the child was not in a booster seat as required. Lara's office says she was trying to avoid a crash in Jamaica Plain Friday when she veered off the road and crashed into a house. Grillo's Pickles is suing a competitor. The Needham-based company is accusing a New Jersey-based company of a theft of Grillo's proprietary recipe. The Boston Business Journal reports that Grillo's Pickles is suing Patriot Pickle for a second time. Grillo's claims that the pickles that Patriot's making under Whole Foods' 365 label are a ripoff of Grillo's own recipe. Consumer fireworks are banned in Massachusetts, but explosions caused by both professional and illegal Fourth of July displays often are a stressful experience for dogs and their owners. WBUR Stevie Chapman explains some ways to keep your pup calm. Experts say it's best to prepare your dog for fireworks as soon as possible. Terry Bright with Angel Animal Medical Center says you can start by setting up a comfortable space for your dog to hide. People will make a little closet fort for their dog and put a comfy bed in there. They'll hide treats in there. She adds it's important to know comforting your dogs with hugs and treats will not reinforce their fear. That fear is a reflex. It is not a learned behavior. The dog has no control over it. So whatever you find that comforts them, do that because you are not making their fear worse. Bright also suggests asking your veterinarian about medication to help calm your dog's anxiety. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 68 degrees in Boston. Showers around today, a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. The past week saw some major decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, and they are bound to have political implications for the 2024 elections. We have NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason on the line now. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. Okay, so let's take a second to look at the big picture when it comes to the political implications of some of these decisions. Right. Well, it's unclear exactly how the politics of last week's decisions will play out in the next election cycle. We're talking about a court that ended President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, ended affirmative actions in college, made a decision that would allow a would-be website designer to refuse to work with a same-sex couple. She could, in theory, refuse to do the same for an interracial couple. We know that the last time the Supreme Court rolled back a right that had been previously granted— the right constitutional right to abortion. The backlash was powerful and partisan. It helped Democrats in the midterms and in state elections. The question is, will all of these new decisions, uh, all of them affecting groups of voters that are very important for Democrats, young people, gay people, minorities, will they be angry and energized to turn out in 2024 or demoralized? It's too soon to tell. Yeah, so, 
so, Mara, I mean, that's a look at the, the political effect of, of the sum total of these decisions. But let's, let's dig into some of the specifics. The decision killing President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan was not the news that millions of Americans struggling with college debt wanted to hear. But the president is saying he's got an alternative plan. Like, how is that going to work? President Biden says he's going to try a different route to get student loan loan relief through what's called the rulemaking process. He said this might take a very long time to get done. Activists who wanted student loan forgiveness were happy that Biden had a plan B ready to go. But again, we don't know will young people be energized to vote or will will they be angry at Biden for not protecting their student loan forgiveness. And we know that from polling, student loans Forgiveness was not a popular thing with a majority of Americans. People say, well, I went through college without a loan or I paid back my loan. Why should I subsidize somebody else's? But again, you know, young people are a very important constituency and we'll see uh, how energized they are about this. So another major rollback, of course, was the decision to end affirmative action. And it prompted a strong response from President Biden. Here's what he said on Thursday. Today, I'm directing the Department of Education to analyze what practices help build a more inclusive and diverse student bodies and what practices hold that back. Practices like legacy admissions and other systems expand privilege instead of opportunity. So, Mara, the president is also pushing back on, on this decision. Yep, he's pointing out that there are there's still affirmative action, there's still preferences for rich people or donors' children or people who are connected. And I think you're going to hear Democrats talk about all of these kinds of preferences as they attack the court's decision. Polling shows that on affirmative action, authorities don't like the idea of racial preferences. They like the idea of colorblindness. But maybe the political impact of these decisions will be the sum total of them, the sense that this is a partisan court, that this is a court taking away hey, uh, rights hey, Mara, to Mara, Mara, to young people. Mara, there's something going on with your line, so I think we're going to have to um, jump because there's something going on with your line. Uh, that's NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliasson. Thank you so much. We're going to look more closely now at how the fight to end affirmative action was orchestrated. Some scholars and activists say it was consciously pitting Asian Americans against other communities of color to bring about the end of the policy. NPR's Sundia Dirks reports. In 2015, the conservative activist Edward Bloom stood in a nondescript conference room in Houston in front of about a dozen Asian Americans. How do we go about making it impossible for universities to use race and ethnicity. Bloom's the main force behind the fight to end affirmative action. He's not a lawyer, but he's repeatedly used the courts to try and roll back civil rights era legislation. He was also behind the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act. To end affirmative action, Bloom had first used white students who were claiming discrimination, but those cases failed. I needed plaintiffs. I needed Asian plaintiffs. And now he was looking for Asian Americans to play the role of affirmative action's victim. In big issue cases, it's common for legal activists to cast plaintiffs, says Berkeley law professor Ian Haney Lopez. But the recasting came with a rebranding. This isn't really about white people at all. This is really about harm to minorities. Except that's not really true. 
says Oyan Poon, who studied Harvard's admission data. There is no evidence that there's a practice of anti-Asian discrimination. Poon is a visiting scholar at the University of Maryland College Park and an expert in race and admissions. She says the data does not back up Bloom's claim. Anti-Asian racism is very real, and there is evidence that there was bias by some admissions officers, ranking Asian Americans lower on personality traits. But Poon says what happened here is something different. Predominantly white conservative political forces are leveraging this experience of being racially marginalized among Asian Americans to say, yeah, and by the way, there's this policy that you're not benefiting from. I feel like Asian Americans have been used. That's Jeff Chang, a senior advisor at the social justice nonprofit Race Forward. There is an entire history of Asian Americans working very hard to get affirmative action programs established. Chang is part of that history. In the 1980s at Berkeley, he and other students got the University of California to admit they were suppressing Asian American admissions in favor of white students. The name of the group he co-founded? The Student Coalition for Fair Admissions. The name of the group Edward Bloom founded two decades later, Students for Fair Admissions. Chang doesn't think the similar name is a coincidence. I know that they had to have been reading the stuff that we were writing. The lawsuits Bloom filed on behalf of Students for Fair Admissions didn't name any Asian American students, but one or two have spoken publicly, including with Fox's Laura Ingram. We found one student from that group willing to tell us why he believes he's the victim of racial discrimination. And it turns out he's a minority, too. 18-year-old Georgia Tech student John Wong was rejected from his top six schools despite stellar grades and test scores. So he turned to Students for Fair Admissions, who ran his numbers through their model. Edward Bloom told me my results, and so they said I had a 20% chance of gaining admission to Harvard as an Asian American, and then a 95% chance as an African American. This is key to the attack on affirmative action. Asian American rejection is directly tied to Black and Latino acceptance, says Sally Chen with Chinese for Affirmative Action. Pitting Asian American communities against, in particular, Black and Latinx communities is about undermining the accomplishments of a lot of Black and Latinx students. And she says it taps right into the model minority myth. That's the stereotype that Asian Americans have been able to bootstrap their way to the American dream solely because they are hardworking, says Janelle Wong, director of the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Maryland College Park. It is a really important tool that has been used historically to undermine other non-white groups pressing for justice to say, well, this non-white group, Asian Americans, can succeed. So why can't Black or Latin groups? The myth ignores the long legacies of systemic racism faced by Black Americans. It ignores selective recruiting of highly educated immigrants. And it enforces a false story about Asian Americans, who are not a monolith. Research shows that those Asian Americans who internalize this myth are also more likely to exhibit anti-Black attitudes and to be anti-affirmative action. Wong says this false narrative that Asian American seats are being taken by less qualified Black and Latino students isn't just racist. It's a misdirect. The recruitment of Asian Americans into this movement provides a cover for white supremacy. A 2019 study found that 43 percent of white students admitted into Harvard got in because they were legacy students, their parents had donated large sums of money, or they played a usually pretty expensive sport. Quote, 
removing preferences for athletes and legacies would significantly alter the racial distribution of admitted students, with the share of white admits falling and all other groups rising or remaining unchanged. But Bloom didn't sue to end legacy admissions. He sued to end programs that boosted minority admissions for those who've historically had less access. Bloom didn't respond to our request for comment, but he's called accusations of racism intellectually lazy and has said it's unclear who will benefit from the end of affirmative action. But Oyan Poon, who studies race and admissions, says it will help white and wealthy people. To think somebody like Ed Blum is going to come along and basically bamboozle young people into thinking like these policies are actually against us when they're actually for us. It's just heartbreaking. Poon and others say affirmative action was not perfect. It was a Band-Aid over a deeper wound of systemic racism and inequity. But the Band-Aid has been ripped off. And at least for now, Poon says, there's no longer anything in place to stop the bleeding. Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get some simple recipes for a hot summer weekend. Keep in mind the first big Sumner Tunnel closure is arriving this week and continues through the end of August. You'll find some tips on workarounds at WBUR.org. It's 68 degrees in Boston with showers, a chance of thunderstorms today, highs in the mid-70s. Showers likely tonight with a chance of thunderstorms. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms and temperatures in the mid-80s. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Several cities in France reported more violence last night for a fifth night. Demonstrations began Tuesday after the fatal police shooting of a 17-year-old of North African descent during a traffic stop. CIA Director William Burns says Russians are becoming disillusioned with the war in Ukraine, and this has created a once-in-a-generation opportunity for his agency to recruit Russian spies. He spoke to a foundation in England yesterday. And a union representing some 15,000 hotel workers in Southern California says it's prepared to go on strike this weekend. A walkout could affect 65 major hotels in Los Angeles and Orange Counties. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Protests and unrest continued overnight in cities across France with over 700 arrests. This follows the police shooting of a teenager outside Paris last Tuesday. Some of the worst violence and looting is in the southern port city of Marseille. And that's where NPR's Eleanor Beardsley joins us from. Hi, Eleanor. Hi, Aisha. So before we hear a story that you've put together for us, tell us more about what you're seeing there in the streets of Marseille. Well, just some surreal scenes. You know, there were large groups of young people in running battles with riot police right on the historical port and through the the old city streets. It was like a giant cat and mouse game. All this while there's tourists walking around. And something new we're seeing this time around are very young protesters President Emmanuel Macron has actually urged parents to take responsibility for their kids. I met some rioters as young as 14. Here's what it was like. Justice for Nael! Justice for Nael! No justice, no peace! Justice for Nael! The young man screams into my microphone before running off with a pack of young men across the port of Marseille with helmeted riot police in hot pursuit. The game went on into the wee hours Sunday morning. Thousands of angry young people are still protesting the killing of 17-year-old Nael by a police officer at a routine traffic stop this week near Paris. 45,000 police deployed overnight across France to try to put a damper on a fifth night of violence. In Marseille, vans of riot police blocked the tiny streets leading from the port helicopters hovered overhead. Uh, cat and mouse game in the city. It, it actually gets scary. Here comes the tear gas. Come here, come here. When the cloud of tear gas clears, I talk to some of the young protesters. We smashed everything, 14-year-old Naim sheepishly tells me. But I didn't steal anything, he says. That was the older boys. He says his parents don't know he's out here. 15-year-old Yassine got into more detail, but neither boy wants to give his last name. They killed a kid and we're here to make them understand they can't do this anymore, he tells me, because the police hit us and treat us bad for no reason. They're supposed to protect us and we're scared of them. But he admits there's also a bit of fun to all this. Yeah, I won't lie, says Yassine. We like the adrenaline rush. A few hours earlier, I wandered the tiny streets behind Marseille's old port and watched shopkeepers board up their windows. Some 400 shops have been smashed and looted in the port city. Maxime Chevalier says the only reason he wasn't pillaged Friday night is because he stayed outside in front of his t-shirt and sneakers store till 4 a.m. He says police did nothing to stop the looters, so he hired private security so he could go home and sleep. He also moved all the merchandise out of his boarded up store just 
just in case. C'est inquiétant, bizarre. Native Marseillais Daniel Bertrand says it's worrying, bizarre, and he wants to cry as he watches shopkeepers barricade. He says the authorities have been too lax for 30 years, and that's why these kids are out of control today. Florian Rodin is about to close his restaurant on the port. He believes it's more complicated than a question of asserting authority. He says a lot of young people of Arab and African origin live in neglected housing projects in Marseille, where drug dealers run things. He says many of them grow up feeling like second-class citizens. You have to put yourself in their place, he says. And Eleanor, tell us more about the French government's response to all of this. Well, it's been very difficult. They've been under a lot of pressure, but authorities say the heavy security they've put in place over the last couple of days is having an effect. The violence may have run its course. Protests were smaller last night, but Aisha, these riots and protests have exposed deep-seated problems that could pop up again. That's NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Marseille, France. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hollywood actors and major studios and streamers have extended their deadline over a new contract. We should note that NPR journalists are represented by the same union, SAG-AFTRA, that's in those negotiations. One issue in those talks has been front and center, artificial intelligence. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen takes a look at why actors are on the defensive in the face of the latest AI innovations. AI deepfakes can place a digital version of an actor in a movie. A real actor's face can be inserted on a stunt double seamlessly. AI can make it look like an actor is speaking in a language they don't speak. These are not fantastical sci-fi scenarios. AI wizardry can do all of this now. Actor Ben McKenzie has been following along. McKenzie starred in the hit mid-2000 show, The O.C., McKenzie played Ryan Atwood, a moody teen from the wrong side of the tracks. So you're going to go to Portland? No, I can't. You should go if you want to go. It's for them to figure out. It's a family. You're not part of their family? Not anymore. Jump ahead two decades, McKenzie and his actor friends are talking a lot about AI. I think the real concern that I hear amongst my fellow actors is how the technology could be used to gain leverage over creatives and to, you know, potentially replace us. McKenzie says he's worried Hollywood studios will try to cut costs with AI technology, like duplicating all of an actor's abilities in a future production. It would save the studios a lot of money. The Screen Actors Guild is pushing for actors to get paid fairly for this kind of AI use. If there was no floor, then understandably it would be a race to the bottom. And you could get someone who's, you know, just starting out to like sign over their entire life theoretically, to, you know, some company to use their likeness. The fears go beyond digital AI doubles being used in films. Libra Keen is an entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles who represents A-list actors. She says there are other concerns. We are also trying to make sure that our clients' performances can't be used to train AI. Meaning her clients have been pushing for contract terms that now include not allowing past performances to be put into an AI to generate something new. Some actors, she says, are already compiling digital libraries of themselves to potentially license for the use in AI. Not just their name and likeness, but the essence of their personality and performance, the thing people hire them for. James Earl Jones, for instance, has agreed to have his voice cloned for use after his death. Prove yourself, and the position of Grand Inquisitor is yours. 
So that iconic Darth Vader voice could appear in films saying something totally new many decades from now. This kind of situation is supported by the Screen Actors Guild. And it's okay with something else. Using AI when an actor isn't available to play a part, as long as actors are paid fairly. But others in Hollywood are resisting the AI movement hard, like Justine Bateman. She's a longtime actress and director. She says it seems like every day AI can do more and more things for movies. It almost feels like it's constantly nagging her. To me, AI seems like a super annoying assistant who's about to get fired. You know, he's like, do you want me to do this for you? Do you want me to do that for you? Do you want me to get you your food? Do you want me to feed you? Do you want me to eat it for you? It's like, no. She says there are plenty of societal issues AI should tackle. But there's not a problem in the entertainment business that AI is solving. Former OC star McKenzie says he's more worried about AI taking away writing gigs from him more than upcoming acting roles. On acting, though, there are some definite lines he would not let AI cross. Now, now, what if Fox made a fifth season of the OC by casting a digital body double of you? <laughs> yeah, that's that's baloney. Hollywood's writers are currently on strike, and AI replacing work is also a major concern. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Los Angeles. This summer has been hot, and with the 4th of July just around the corner, we're looking for some chili recipes to help us cool on down. That means stepping away from the grill or the oven and cracking open the freezer. Julia Collin Davison and Bridget Lancaster are here to help. They host America's Test Kitchen on PBS and join us now, not far from America's Test Kitchen headquarters in Boston. Welcome to you both. Hi there. Thank you for having us. So to start off, what are your essential summer ingredients? Two ingredients. One, fresh berries, because they never taste as good up here, you know, in the Northeast, at least, as they do during the summer. So strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, always have something, because at the very least, you could just pour a little fresh cream over that and call it a day. Serve it with a cookie and you're done. Okay, so get the whipped cream and a cookie and some berries and Fourth of July happy. That's it. <laughs> nice and easy. You could use Ready Whip. Okay. I have nothing against Ready Whip. Okay. Or, you know, just a little heavy cream. You don't even need to whip it. Just drizzle it over. Okay. Oh, and serve it with a biscotti. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's one. The other is coconut milk because you can do so much with it. I love making popsicles, and it's a really short recipe. It's a little bit of salt. It's a little bit of flaked coconut. I use the unsweetened stuff, but you could use the sweetened stuff if you want to. A little vanilla, a little honey, and coconut milk. And we have exact recipes for this, but those are the basic ingredients. Sometimes I add a little cinnamon or ground clove. gives it that horchata-like taste. Mix it up, put it in a popsicle mold, um, call it a day. So, so Bridget, what is your go-to recipe that you kind of keep at the ready? You know, when summer comes, uh, I've got two kids, when they've got all their friends over, or even when I've got friends over, it's, you can set up kind of like a, a last minute ice cream party and you can have out, you know, your, your toasted coconut and your chocolate chips and your chocolate syrup and things like that. But I think the other thing, uh, the, my other two big summer ingredients, one is, uh, well, is booze. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Need a lot of that. <laughs> booze makes ice cream better ingredient <laughs> in, ter in terms of adult desserts that is for sure um and then the other thing i like to have is i actually love to have pound cake because i think pound cake a little whipped cream and some fresh berries like what julia is saying and i don't even mind it if people break out the Sara Lee. okay um, it's yeah. better if you make it yourself but you know do what you got to do especially on a hot day we we mentioned drinks do you have any recommendations for drinks to kind of spice things up or 
or, you know, cool things down for your your summer event? Well, I got to tell you, a nice big pitcher of sangria is always a good mm. idea, you know, and and you can switch out the wine, you know, as long as it's a really, uh, a wine that's really nice chilled. Um, so a light red or a white or a, a really beautiful rosé with berries in it is just spectacular. And I think that's one of the easiest ways to be a winner, especially because it gets better if it sits for a day in the fridge. It's just fantastic. And so, and Julia, do you avoid super spicy? On a hot summer day, or do you lean into it? Oh, I lean into it. I mean, if it helps you cool down because you're a little hot around the collar or sweating, that's all good. That is true. And if it's spicy (laughs) enough and you sweat enough, you don't have to go to the gym. No. (laughs) Yes, that's proven fact, right, Bridget? Proven. Mm -hmm. Proven. Are there things that you avoid, though? Yeah, you know what I really don't like? are super fatty things. You know, I love potato salad, but sometimes if it's really rich and it's out in the heat, you know, it can't hang out for very long. And most people think it's the mayonnaise that goes bad, but it's not. It's actually the simple starches. So it's the potatoes and the macaroni, if it's a macaroni salad. Um, So if you do want to put them, you know, put it in a tray of ice or a bowl of ice to help keep it cold. Yeah, I would say the the one fatty, quote-unquote, food that I absolutely crave in the summer is fried food. I love fried clams, and I love fried chicken, and I love anything fried because, to me, it's just— it it means that you're outside and you, maybe you're by the water and you're eating the you know the, it's almost like being at a, a carnival or something but yeah. the food's a lot better. Um, as far as foods to avoid, I think the really heavy foods, um, mm. the big uh, beef uh, roasts or anything yeah, on the like, grill, like a lasagna or something. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh my goodness! That that is why we have autumn. Yeah. Okay. You yes. know? <laughs> I think that's exactly it. You know, like yeah. get me past the bathing suit yeah. season. Maybe I'll look at a lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> that's Bridget Lancaster and Julia Colin Davison host of America's Test Kitchen. Thank you both for joining us. Our complete pleasure. Thank you so much and happy summer. So nice talking with you, Aisha. Have a good one. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We've been highlighting some of our favorite submissions to NPR Music's Tiny Desk Contest. This week we hear from Giovanni Kiyinji and his song Bakunja, a place he's never been. I come from Africa, uh, in particular East Africa, Uganda. And uh, the song is inspired by a certain village in Uganda, which uh, people fear to go there because of the myths that are going around in that place. 
when we were growing up, if what, what we heard about Bokunja, oh, these guys are cannibals, or these guys are doing all the atrocities that are happening in, you know, since it is far away from most of the towns, we tend to believe that. So he made a joyful song that challenged those myths. My inspiration came from that, like my imaginations of going there and what if the myths that people are talking about are not right or are not true. Kiyinji left Uganda and lived in several countries before moving to Phoenix, where he's lived for about five years. Coming to Phoenix, it was the same feeling wanting to collaborate or to work with people as a new artist in town pushes me really to uh, start discovering a lot of things that are happening in, uh, in Phoenix. And uh, I get so many questions about what are you doing in Phoenix? Why don't you move to like LA or New York City or something like that? But I was like, oh, Phoenix for me looks and feels fresh and uh, that creates a lot of room for uh, growing as an artist. And also the sun. <laughs> I love the heat because I come from East Africa, you know, the equator is crossing over, so it feels like you are home. The song, which is nearly 11 minutes long, features a traditional instrument. I play a kogo in that song which is uh, one of the traditional instruments from Uganda. And then towards the end, sample uh, the djembe, which is an instrument from West Africa. So it is the fusion of different cultures that filled the song. The Eastern part of Africa is, uh, is not really known in terms of music for some good time, you know, compared to uh, South Africa and West Africa. When you come to East Africa, not so many uh, musicians that really have uh, crossed to the world. So I'm playing this music for people to turn their ears or and, and eyes to start looking for what is going on in East Africa. That was Giovanni Kiyinji. His Tiny Desk Contest submission was called Bakunja. Support for NPR and the Tiny Desk Contest comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Capital One, what's in your wallet? And from Guayaki, maker of Yerba Mate, who believe community comes to life and connections are made through music. Guayaki, come to life. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara will face charges after a car crash in Jamaica Plain Friday that required her seven-year-old son to get stitches. The Boston Globe reports that a police report indicates that Lara was driving with a revoked license and was operating an unregistered and uninsured car with an expired inspection sticker. The Globe also says the Department of Children and Families was notified about the crash because a police officer noted that the child was not in a booster seat as required. Today, the MBTA summer schedule takes effect. The change involves both service frequency decreases and increases on subway lines and buses. For the details, check the MBTA website. 
Lots of communities around Massachusetts are offering events to mark the Independence Day weekend. Today, Quincy hosts a celebration on the Hancock-Adams Common from 4 to 8 p.m., including a performance by the United States Navy Band Northeast. Today, fireworks displays are scheduled in cities and towns, including Canton, Chatham, Cohasset, Haverhill, Lexington, and Wilmington. This afternoon in Toronto, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the Blue Jays. It is 67 degrees in Boston with some showers around today and a chance of thunderstorms. Highs in the mid-70s, some showers likely tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, and a chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow with highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said, how well can you spit? And I just found it coming out of my mouth. I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will, and happy holiday weekend. Happy holiday weekend, Aisha. Yes. So, Will, can you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Greg Van Mechelen of Berkeley, California. I said, name a well-known TV character, five letters in the first name, six letters in the last. Change the first letter of the first name to a Y and read it backward you'll get a synonym of the character's last name. Who is it? Well, the character is Della Street. Change the D to a Y. Backward, it's Allie, which is sort of a synonym of street from the Perry Mason TV shows and books. Oh, my goodness. So I feel like a lot of y'all did not know this one, but but there were over 200 entries and 180 correct submissions. And out of those, Kendra Armour of San Carlos, California, is our winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so, so, Kendra, how did you figure this one out? Because, I mean, do you watch a lot of Perry Mason? Is that what was going on? No, the original <laughs> was on before I was born, and okay. I may have to watch the remake now. But I started um, thinking that the names might be adjectives since mm-hmm. one ended in Y. So I started to try to think of characters with last names that were adjectives. Um, that didn't work. Then I tried to find ones that had meanings beyond being just a name. And I found another character with a last name, Street. And then Allie popped into my head as a synonym for that. So I thought of names that started, you know, 
blank E-L-L-A. And after Bella, Della came up quickly and a, a quick Google search confirmed it. Oh, wow. So you didn't even know of the character, but you just right. figured it out. Oh, my goodness. I am impressed. That That is very <laughs> impressive. And you've been playing for a while, right? Yes, I've been playing since uh, about 2002 and have entered regularly over the many years. So it's taken me a while to get here. But I would say persistence pays off for those of us who don't win on the first entry. Well, now, now is the time. Now is your time, Kendra. Are you ready to play the puzzle? Yes. <laughs> All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Kendra and Aisha, I'm going to give you some clues. For each one, take the last two letters, reverse them, and use those to start the answer to the clue. For example, if I said name for a cat, you would say tabby, because cat ends A-T, reverse that to get T-A, and T-A starts tabby. Here we go. Number one is part of the foot. Toe. Toe is part of the foot, right. Scrabble unit. Pile. Uh-huh. Greek hero. Uh, Orpheus. Orpheus. Interesting. I was going for Orestes. All right. Yours might work, too. Jesuit school. Loyola. Loyola. Good. Thesaurus author. Roger. Roger is it. Prophet in the Bible. Uh, Elijah. Excellent. Gun part. Trigger. Uh-huh. Chocolatey dessert. Mmm. Sure. Uh-huh. It's also the name of a mushroom, but that's something different. This is a chocolatey dessert. Oh, oh, oh. I love chocolate. I don't so, know why I'm, so I'm not getting this the one. Tr truffle? Truffle? <laughs> truffle. A truffle, truffle, is it? Of course. Good one, Aisha. Italian restaurant offering. Gnocchi. Excellent. Mushroom. Morel. Nice. And here's your last one. Nobel Science. Chemi uh, economics. Good job. Okay, so usually with these puzzles, I kind of get them. But, Kendra, it took me about you getting four or five of the answers for me to realize <laughs> how, what the puzzle was even doing. You were going so fast. I'm I just thought y'all were saying words, and then Kendra was saying a word back, and I was confused. But you did an amazing job. How do you feel? Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Yes, you really got the, the, the wordplay. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Kendra, what member station do you listen to? KQED. Been, been members uh, since 2002. Uh, that is awesome. That's Kendra Armour of San Carlos, California. Thank you so much for playing. Thank you very much. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Darwin Lang of Mandan, North Dakota. Name a sports facility in two words. This is a general term, not a specific place. Three consecutive letters in the first word also appear consecutively in the same order in the second word. And if you reverse these three letters, you'll name something seen in this sports facility. What is it? So again, sports facility, two words. Three consecutive letters in the first word appear consecutively in the same order in the second word. And if you reverse these three letters, you'll name something 
seen in a sports facility. What is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, July 7th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. You know that expression, busy as a bee. Well, those bees aren't playing. It's pretty amazing how much work that the bees have to do, and I don't think a lot of people realize it. An acre of blueberries has two million flowers, and each flower has to be visited six to eight times by a honeybee in order to be fully pollinated. Beekeepers across the U.S. lost about half of their colonies last year, one of the highest death rates on record. And bee health is vital for us all. It's important for people to understand that and remember where their food comes from. And, you know, we depend on honeybees for our existence. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a visit to a blueberry farm to better understand the challenges facing bees and beekeepers. Listen by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. So our next guest turned the tables on us, asking what we thought of his new series. We said, we're kind of hooked. That's what I'm here for, to hook you into a story. Job done. I can go home now. Thank you. Yeah, that's the Idris Elba. And he did actually stick around to talk to us about that new series. Mm-hmm. Elba stars as Sam Nelson, who makes a very comfortable living as a corporate negotiator and deal maker. From the opening scene, though, with this old Sam Cooke tune playing as he boards a plane from Dubai to London, you sense that life is about to get really uncomfortable for Idris Elba's character. After all, the show, which just started on Apple TV, is called Hijack. There are like some 200 people on this flight. And most of them will do exactly as you say. That's right. But let's face it, there are some who will kick off and cause you problems. Sit down. No, no. Let me just tell you where I'm at, okay? I don't care about any of those people. I just want to get home to my family. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you. Now, you're not going to get no spoilers out of me, but we did press Idris Elba on what drew him to this character, especially since he's known for such iconic roles. Stringer Bell on The Wire, Luther, even his portrayal of Nelson Mandela. I was drawn to Sam because he's just an ordinary man. He's not like a detective. He's not like a drug dealer. He's not a a president of a (laughs) country. This is a guy that's trying to get home to his family and someone hijacks a plane and he has to make a decision whether the fate of his life and his journey is in the hands of these people. And he decides against that. You know, before we even get a word of dialogue from Sam, like the audience kind of meets him through a close up on his eyes. They look weary. And then there's this Sam Cooke song, Trouble Blues, playing. Like, what did you think of that song selection? And there was a lot of good music throughout this whole thing, I must say. The music is good in this. Yeah. um, You know, there's lots of close ups of me because Mm -hmm. it's told from my perspective. 
When you watch Sam Nelson, you see him make a decision, you see him thinking about something, you're like, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Yeah, yeah, so that yeah. song choice was designed to really pull at the audience quickly and, you know, decide whether they want to follow this guy's story or not. And you did play a little bit of Teddy Pendergrass, Wake Up Everybody. That's one of my favorites. You can't see, but behind me, there's a big poster of Teddy, of Teddy? Pendergrass. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I always, long time ago, I actually wanted to play the Teddy Pendergrass story. You should. You yeah. should. I can't sing. But you should. Okay, I digress. I mean, you talk about how you're in this hijack scenario, like for a multi-episode drama. I mean, it's like the ultimate locked room. And then when you talk about the close-ups, a lot of times the characters can't talk. They just have to look at each other. They have to like signal with each other. Like how difficult was that to do? Uh, You know, it was not as difficult as you might think, you know, because uh, human beings, before we could speak, we found ways to signal to each other. And especially in times of danger, that's where smiling came from. Once the signal passed, we would smile naturally, be like, (laughs) okay, it's all good, because we couldn't say it. Uh, So we were quite observant about that, because on a plane, we often don't usually speak to strangers, okay? So if you and a stranger are trying to communicate with each other, you have to rely on reading my face and me read yours. And that's a, that's a real human instinct. And so we wanted to pull into that a little bit with this storytelling. You know, not that long ago, Hollywood movies, there would be a bunch of cliches, but it seems like this show was very intent on making sure that you didn't get into those cliches about terrorists, right? Like, how intentional was that? That, that was very intentional. I mean, it was, it was one of the first things we spoke about in the early stages of development, which is, how do we make this different? And that was, you know, a process of eliminating those tropes. The name of the airline is called Kingdom. And it really is a uh, symbol for the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is a real melting pot of cultures. And of course, you walk around London, everyone's a Londoner and everyone looks different. And that's what it's like on a plane. However, on a plane, you make assumptions about who people are based on what they look like. And that's why it was really fun to just throw this at the wall a little bit. There's a lot of action in it, and you do get to scrapping a little bit. I, I feel like action heroes, they'll take on terrorists, they'll battle the apocalypse, but emotionally, they're so broken. Like, they can never keep their marriages together. They'll fight hijackers before they'll go to therapy. Like, I feel like Sam is a prime example of this. He's he's toxic. <laughs> he's toxic masculinity. He's paid to use that toxicity to get people to buy and sell companies at a higher premium. That's what he's there for. He's there to tell you and make your ego inflate so that you can be like, I need to close this deal. And it isn't until the end of the film that he realizes that is not going to wash in this, this area. He is a human being first. And that's what that journey is for Sam. You know what I'm saying? He's on that plane because he has to go home to his wife. His wife is practically, I don't want to spoil it, but his wife is practically on to the next. And he wants to try and fix that. But Mm -hmm. it's too late. (laughs) That's kind of hard to accept though, right? I mean, love and all of that. This is what happens when you procrastinate. See, procrastination (laughs) is the thief of time. Okay, there you go. So, I mean, look, you've been at this acting thing at least professionally for almost 30 years. 
has what you're looking for in a role changed now over the years that you are an established superstar and all of that? You know, I, when I started my career, it was all about being the best. It was all about being the biggest. It was all about, you know, winning an Oscar and winning awards. And since I haven't won any of those, uh, I'm more, I, I have this power as an actor and most actors do to influence not only in the roles you take, but in who you live your life is. Because people people idolize people in public eye and how you are in reality is you influence people. I tend to choose roles that, what am I saying about men? What am I saying about myself? Mm. How Can I influence with this role? You know, even if it's a bad guy, I like that bad guy to have complexities. I want him to have some empathy or I want you to have empathy for him. Is it harder to play a bad guy versus a good guy like Sam Nelson? It's harder to play a good guy. Yeah, and make him interesting. It's harder because yeah. good guys are written in a way that they don't offend anybody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and bad guys yeah. is like, and that's just, <laughs> that's just more fun to play. Is there a role out there that you are still coveting? Like, I really want to play that. Maybe it's Teddy Pendergrass. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Turn off the lights. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. I see it. Light I see candle. it. I told you I can't sing, so that's not the one. It's a, they'll get somebody else to do the singing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, any role that really just, you know, sort of, I guess, stretches the imagination of my of my audience. You know, I have a very loyal audience because people that love Stringer Bell will be like, I'm waiting for my new Stringer Bell, but they stay with me. <laughs> And I oh, take him yeah. through all yeah. kind of journeys. It's like I didn't like him in that, but I love him in this. And but I I, I uh, try to keep it varied. You know, life is all mm -hmm. about variety, in my opinion, and and I try to keep it varied. Well, thank you so much. That is Idris Elba, star of the new show Hijack. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. It's really good to see you, and uh, good luck. <laughs> This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. That's Teddy Pendergrass, and I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Start your day tomorrow with Rupa Shinoy and 90.9 WBUR. You'll hear about a shortage of medical specialists causing long delays in the ER. You'll also get the story on new life for an old Orson Welles film. Listen again tomorrow morning on the radio and ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. 
presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 23rd at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org, and Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with BBG Fest, featuring female and gender-expansive artists. Free July 8th on City Hall Plaza, bbgboston.org. Former Obama speechwriter Sarah Hurwitz grew up in what she calls a culturally Jewish home. But it wasn't until her 30s that she found deeper meaning in her childhood faith. This was the first time I was exposed to the other 99.999999% of Judaism. And I thought, where has this been all my life? I'm Scott Tetro. Finding spirituality where least expected. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions. What does that mean for the use of race in things like scholarships or programs designed for students of color? And election workers under attack. We take a deep dive into the threats they face for doing their job after the lies spread about the 2020 election. I actually bring a weapon with me every day to work. Plus, I'd like to buy a vow. Will of Fortune is getting a new host. We talk about the long-running game show's legacy. It's Sunday, July 2nd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. There were more riots across France last night over the death of a 17-year-old who was fatally shot by a police officer last week. But France's interior ministry says the fifth night of unrest was less intense, a sign that they may be subsiding. Rebecca Rosman reports from Paris. Just over 700 people were arrested during last night's demonstrations, down from 1,300 the night before. France's interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, credits the decrease in numbers to the work of security forces. More than 45,000 police have been deployed across the country. The increase in police security has been welcomed by some, especially business owners whose stores have been looted. But the riots have also presented a crisis for French President Emmanuel Macron who canceled a scheduled state visit to Germany. Many say the boy's death is a symptom of a much larger problem in France tied to police brutality and systemic racism, especially in the working-class suburbs. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Paris. An environmental campaign group has accused the British energy company Shell of trading Russian gas more than a year after a pledge to pull out of the country. Shell says the shipments don't violate laws or sanctions. The BBC's Ben King has more. Global Witnesses' analysis found that last year, Shell handled nearly an eighth of Russia's liquefied natural gas exports by sea and is still buying vast tankers of gas from the Yamal Peninsula in Russia's far north. An advisor to Ukraine's president, Oleg Yustenko, said that the trades helped to fund Russia's aggression and called on the company to use the profits to fund reconstruction in Ukraine. 
Shell said that the gas shipments were part of long-term contractual commitments, which it could not break. The BBC's Ben King. Lawmakers in Alabama are planning to hold a special session this month to draw a new map of congressional voting districts. The Supreme Court had struck down the state's current map for likely violating the Voting Rights Act. NPR's Hansi Luang reports. The special session of Alabama's legislature is set to last for five days beginning on July 17th. That's more than a month after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the congressional map that Alabama used for last year's midterm elections likely diluted the power of black voters in the state. And that violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. A lower federal court is now watching to see if Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature will come up with a new redistricting plan that will have to include more than one majority black district. And that could open up the possibility of two Democrats representing Alabama in the U.S. House of Representatives after next year's elections. Anzi Luong, NPR News. Police in Baltimore, Maryland are investigating a mass shooting this morning. They say at least two people were killed and at least 28 others were wounded, some critically. They say they have no suspects at this time. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is reacting to the Supreme Court's decision to block the Biden administration's plan to forgive student loan debt. She denounced the ruling. On MSNBC's The Readout Friday, Presley said the decision will hurt the 43 million Americans who relied on debt relief. Educators who took on this debt because they want to teach our babies and they can't afford to raise their own children and meet the monthly minimums. Senior citizens on fixed incomes who've had their wages uh, garnished um, because they still owe. A whole generation of millennial and Gen Z who cannot start a home. She noted that black borrowers without generational wealth will be hit hard by the decision. Presley called on President Biden to act quickly on a new path to provide relief for borrowers. A mother could face charges after leaving her toddler in a hot car. Falmouth police said on social media that officers and firefighters responded Friday to a store parking lot for reports of a toddler alone in a car seat. They found the child in the car with the engine turned off. It was 78 degrees and sunny outside. An officer broke a window to free the child. Police say the inside of a car can rise 15 degrees every three minutes. The MBTA's summer schedule takes effect today. Changes are in place on the green, orange, and blue lines. The T also has made several changes to bus schedules. You can check your route at the MBTA's website. Open Newberry Street returns today. Eight blocks of Newberry Street will be closed to cars every Sunday through October 15th. The city of Boston is encouraging businesses on the stretch to set up events outside on these Sundays. In the forecast for the Boston area, showers today and a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the mid-70s. Showers likely tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, a low about 70. A chance of some showers and thunderstorms tomorrow with highs in the mid-80s and looking ahead to the 4th of July for the holiday. Looks like a chance of showers and thunderstorms during the day and highs in the low 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and the Pew Charitable Trusts, celebrating its 75th anniversary using data to make a difference and addressing the challenges of a changing world. Learn more at pewtrusts.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Former President Donald Trump keeps repeating the big lie that he won the 2020 election. And that has local election officials around the country fearing for their safety in advance of the 2024 presidential elections. In fact, many of them told NPR's Chris Arnold that they are already facing threats. This past midterm election, things were getting pretty intense at the local elections office in Coos County, Oregon. We would have people in this hallway trying to take pictures of everything we're doing with their phones. Dee Dee Murphy, the county clerk at the time, says local people apparently juiced up on misinformation were camped out inside the building day after day. And some of them were very mean. Even though a couple of years before, Trump won in this county with 59% of the vote, Murphy and the other election workers say people would still yell in their faces about voter fraud. Over about a month, a security guard stopped people from bringing in a total of 20 guns and 60 knives or other weapons inside. And beyond that, some of the altercations were really frightening. 911, what's your emergency? Hi, yes, I work with the county clerk's office. I have had somebody following me since I left. During the general election last year, a county worker called 911 four times in a single day as he was driving around collecting ballots from drop boxes. He says a woman in a big Jeep Gladiator truck was following him, videotaping him at each drop box. He says she was armed with a handgun on her belt. I see the Jeep Gladiator turn around the corner and drive very quickly down the road and then slam on the brakes and skid to a stop just past me. And then she leaned out of the car and looked at me and yelled, you traitor. After that, he says the woman tailgated him right on his bumper, driving erratically, sometimes swerving around next to him. I was terrified, the swerving around my car. I was worried that I might not make it off that road. More than two years after January 6th, Donald Trump's lie that he won the election is alive and well in a large chunk of the Republican Party. Conspiracy theorists tour the country speaking at events claiming that elections are rigged and the misinformation about voter fraud is endangering the people whose job it is to conduct elections. NPR obtained contact information for thousands of local election workers and attempted to reach them. Workers and officials across 22 different states told NPR that they've received threats or felt unsafe doing their jobs. I actually bring a weapon with me every day to work. That's Nancy Boren, the director of elections in Columbus, Georgia. We spoke to other election workers in Georgia and Virginia who didn't want to use their names. We have a lot of just general views. You're trying to rig the election. You all be ashamed of yourself. They said that they were coming for my family and somebody would have to pay for this. In this past midterm election, an official in Arizona tells NPR someone threatened to murder him and his children. The FBI arrested the person. Here's another official in a southern state who didn't want to use her name for fear of being further targeted. The threat was specifically that the following week that I would not be alive. My home address was made public online and then my dog was poisoned. The dog barely survived. Of course, there is absolutely no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Lawsuits alleging fraud have been thrown out of court by judges all over the country. These election officials are just trying to do their jobs. They're Republicans, Democrats, independents, they're all dealing with this. And it's everyone from top state officials to lower level county workers who handle ballots or even senior citizen volunteers. 
David Becker heads up the nonprofit Center for Election Innovation and Research. Election officials have been under siege. They've been threatened, abused, and harassed for nearly three years now, and it's getting worse. A recent survey from the nonprofit Brennan Center found that nearly one in three election workers say that they've had to deal with harassment, abuse, or threats, and almost half worry about the safety of their colleagues in future elections. I am very nervous about next year, about the presidential year. I'm nervous about what that's going to look like, too. Back in Coos County, Oregon, the worker who says he was chased in his car and his wife both work in the local elections office. So they've both been dealing with all this. Also, while having their first baby, she was nine months pregnant this past election. During that time, I was scared and I didn't get to feel safe at home either. She also doesn't want to use her name. She says the couple was followed home from work. They say election denier people knocked on the neighbor's doors asking questions about them. Like other election workers that NPR talked to, the couple's now set up a motion-sensitive floodlight and a security camera. Our garbage cans were gone through. There was garbage taken out and mail strewn across their yard. Oh, you mean like in a cop show or something where they like go through the garbage yeah yeah just like that again it was this mix of ridiculousness along with things that were more serious violent sounding social media posts were scary and the couple doesn't think the community here realizes what they've been going through at the elections office it felt like we were under attack constant phone calls and people coming in and yelling at us and we were reaching out to the sheriff's office so they were walking us to and from the building and anytime we stepped out of the door people were filming us and at one point, as the sheriff was leading us outside, people were recording and laughing. Like, that's so funny that we we're so scared that we had to let the sheriff walk us out. And that was just really crazy. Absolutely inexcusable that that would happen. John Sweet is a Coos County commissioner. He's 83 years old, and he's a Republican who does not believe in the voter fraud conspiracy theories. He says it was hard to watch and hear about local people doing all this to county election workers. You know, it's, it's a form of mob activity in a way. You know, the, the mob takes on a personality of its own that's probably different than the prevalent personality of individual members of the mob. I don't think it was unique to our county. It was a, a national thing. Everybody remembers the spectacle of the mob at the Capitol on January 6th. But of course, those people came from somewhere and they went back home, where some of them outside of the national spotlight are carrying on the fight. And that's what's been happening here in Coos County. Rod Taylor runs a local surveying supply business. He was arrested for a curfew violation after the riot on January 6th in D.C. I heeded an admonition from General Michael Flynn to go home and make a difference there. And so we started a citizens group here in Coos County called Citizens Restoring Liberty, and we continue to meet weekly. The group is worried about supposed voter fraud and also government regulation of guns, masks, and public schools. Its members have run as candidates for local government and school boards. Taylor himself ran for county commissioner. Here he is speaking ahead of last year's election on a local conservative talk radio show. You know what? I'm proud to have been right. there on January 6th. Right. Yeah, it was a peaceable gathering on the 6th. And it, you know what? People were happy, man. It was January I mean, 6th was, was quite outrage, violent. On the talk show, Taylor said he went into the building very briefly, though he says he did not participate in the violence. 
County officials say it was members of that Citizens Restoring Liberty group who were camped in the hallways of the elections office. But despite their concerns about voter fraud, when the votes were counted, Rod Taylor narrowly won, a result he does not dispute, and he is now a Coos County Commissioner. There's no window in here, unfortunately. I wish I had a little bit of outside light, but- uh, Taylor is showing me around his thing, new county office. Uh, he's wearing a gun on his belt. He's got a scripture reading of the day on his desk, an American flag, a Trump one sign. We wanted to ask Taylor, does he think it's okay that local election workers here in his own county feel threatened just doing their jobs? Did you realize that there are election workers here in the county who fear for their safety because of this? Yeah, of course I'm aware of that. But Taylor says he never threatened election workers himself, and he's not responsible for it. The fact of the matter is, when you've got a large group of people, it's sometimes like herding cats, and you cannot control what individuals do. So, um, unfortunately, we did have some people who I think uh, engaged election staff in unproductive ways that I would not have advocated for, uh, and I still don't condone. My biggest worry is that people aren't going to want to do the job anymore. Over at the elections office, Julie Brecky is the new county clerk. She's trying to figure out how to avoid a repeat of last year in the upcoming presidential race. Already, one election worker has resigned. It's an important job, and the people that work in this office take it very seriously, and they like their job. And if they're harassed constantly and made to look like villains, then it, eventually that weighs on people. I don't want to lose good people over harassment based on misinformation. For their part, law enforcement officials say it can be difficult to intervene. 911, what's your emergency? This is Coos County with a transfer. This is for the, the election worker who says he was chased while collecting ballots says he was told by police that since no officers saw this person driving erratically, there was nothing they could do. They have tried to run me off the road. I'm a little scared. Okay. After we published this story on our website, the woman who was following the election workers said on a local talk radio show that she was not carrying a gun. We should also note that we tried to reach her repeatedly while reporting this story, but she never responded. The sheriff, Gabe Fabrizio, says there were also complaints from voters who felt harassed or threatened at drop boxes. But he says nothing rose to the level that law enforcement decided that they could do much about. We want to make sure that everybody's First Amendment rights, their freedom of speech is protected. So uh, threats we take definitely seriously and we'll go investigate them. And but at the same time, you got to balance that off of people can say whatever they want. Around the country, people are trying to find solutions. Some states are passing laws to try to help. Right now, Donald Trump, the election denialist in chief, is the GOP frontrunner in the next presidential election. But that's more than a year away. So state, federal, and local governments do have time to try to come up with ways to lower the temperature and keep election workers safe if they don't wait till the last minute. Chris Arnold, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, Wheel of Fortune is getting a new host. Ryan Seacrest will take over from Pat Sajak. You'll consider the TV game show's enduring popularity and what the future might hold. 
Wherever the summer takes you, you can count on WBUR. The WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen, listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. It is 68 degrees in Boston, showers around today, a chance of some thunderstorms and highs in the mid-70s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, with master's degrees, certificates, and endorsements to fit teachers' goals and lives, whether online or on campus. Online.merrimack.edu. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Violent protests continue in France. Young rioters clashed with police in several cities overnight for the fifth consecutive night. The unrest began with the fatal shooting of a 17-year-old boy last week. CIA Director William Burns says last weekend's brief uprising by Russian mercenaries against the Russian military has created what he called a once-in-a-generation opportunity to recruit Russian spies. He says his agency intends to make the most of it. And at least two people were killed and 28 others were wounded early this morning in a mass shooting during a block party in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Colleges, future students, and their families are processing the Supreme Court's decision to ban affirmative action in the admissions process. The decision has the potential to affect colleges beyond who gets in and why. NPR's higher education correspondent Alyssa Nadwerney is here to explain. Welcome to the program. Hey, Aisha. So how could this decision to ban race as a factor in admissions uh, have an effect on, you know, like other race adjacent programs, like, say, scholarships for black students or programs specifically for Latinos going into medicine? Yeah, well, I mean, that was and in many ways still is a big concern among higher education experts. But the majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts was actually pretty narrow. He wrote that the admissions programs at Harvard and UNC were unlawful and, you know, that the school can't just check a box for race, so to speak. But he did not go farther. I talked with Liliana Garces, who studies education law at the University of Texas, Austin. And, you know, she believes this decision doesn't explicitly prohibit race-conscious decisions in those other areas that you're talking about, such as financial aid. The only legal issue that was before the court was the consideration of race and admissions. It'll be important for institutions to hold their ground and be able to engage in those other practices that are absolutely foundational to their mission. 
I also spoke with Dominique Baker, a professor of education policy at Southern Methodist University, and she agreed with that assessment. We want to make sure that we don't overstate what the legal contours are, because that might create a chilling effect where institutions restrict themselves further than the legal limits. So do states like California and Michigan, where affirmative action was already not allowed, show us what might happen nationally? They do. I talked with Kelly Slay about this. She's at Vanderbilt University. She studied what happened at the University of Michigan after the state banned affirmative action at state schools. Here's what she says. There was this kind of chilling effect where, you know, folks on campus weren't talking explicitly about race. Like they were scared. They didn't know exactly what they could and what they couldn't do. One example she points to is a program at Michigan that was created to increase access and success for students of color. It's now mostly comprised of students who are white and come from lower income backgrounds and rural communities. So a big kind of change there, even though that wasn't really included in the state ruling. So what is the most effective way to get a diverse student body? Well, research has shown again and again that really nothing is as effective as considering race. There was this big research from Georgetown University. They did simulations to see kind of what would happen when they removed race and instead used combinations of things like high school grades or test scores or even socioeconomic indicators. They didn't make diverse classes. So what happens now? Like what will colleges use? So we can expect to see colleges focus more on the essay In Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, he kind of left the door open on this, saying that students could talk about how race had impacted their lives when they applied. We'll also probably see an increase in recruitment to try and find students, expanded financial aid, including maybe some free college programs. Those, of course, you know, are going to take money. And then the other thing we may see going forward is more test optional schools. So that's where schools are no longer requiring the SAT and ACT. That became pretty popular during the pandemic and has been shown to create more ethnic and racial diversity. Using race in admissions has come up again and again in the courts. Um, Will this victory for opponents of affirmative action actually be the end of it or is it just the beginning? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the man behind both the Harvard and the UNC cases is a guy named Edward Bloom. He's the founder and president of Students for Fair Admissions. In early court filings in the Harvard case, they were arguing that they wanted to end, quote, any use of race or ethnicity in the educational setting, not just in admissions. After this decision, Bloom has promised to enforce you know, the decision saying his group is going to keep an eye on colleges to make sure that they are really following the law of this ruling. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks, Aisha. are hitting the 90s well into the upper Mississippi Valley and it's even warmer in the central and southern plains and despite the advice you just heard from Nelly and the song there Americans are opting for AC millions of homes with air conditioners on full blast pulling electricity from overburdened power grids according to the North American Electric Reliability Corporation 
two-thirds of the U.S. are at risk of energy shortfalls due to extreme heat. Daniel Cohan is a professor of environmental engineering at Rice University, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Aisha. Great to be with you. So extreme heat isn't new, but obviously with climate change, it's becoming increasingly common. And our power grids, they're not really equipped for this, right? They're still very old-fashioned. Right. They're uh, struggling to keep up with heat waves that keep getting hotter as the climate warms. And right now we're seeing some of the hottest temperatures that we've ever experienced in June. Our biggest sources of supply historically haven't been growing. We haven't been building new nuclear plants or new hydroelectric dams in this country. We've been closing a lot of our coal plants. And that's coming at a time when demand is starting to grow again. We're having these Heat waves drive up air conditioning use in the summer, and we're starting to see more and more electric cars and data centers on the grid that are driving demand up after a couple decades when demand growth was very slow. Is the solution to simply increase renewable energy production around the country, say by building more wind farms, solar farms? It's part of the solution. The Department of Energy expects that most of the growth that we're going to see in electricity this year is going to come from solar and wind. In fact, there are enormous numbers of wind and solar farms waiting to be built, 10 times as many solar projects wanting to be built as as what we have on the grid. But our power grid isn't really set up to have enough transmission lines connecting to the sunniest and windiest parts of the country. So we're seeing the grid experience strains in getting enough power from where it's really windy and sunny to uh, the cities and factories that need it most. That That is an issue. Right. Our grid got built to bring power from several hundred really big power plants, nuclear plants, coal plants, gas plants, and bring it out from there to cities. What we need with wind and solar is a lot more lines with enough capacity, the, the really high voltages that let you move a lot of power around. Getting all these lines built, you have to like cross state lines, which is always a big issue because states will disagree. And then also people don't necessarily want power lines built all over the place. Right. There's a big problem with the not in my backyard attitudes, which uh, has made it very hard to build new infrastructure. So are there any places in the U.S. that have done a good job of modernizing the grid? Here in Texas, What our leaders got right was building out billions of dollars worth of power lines within the state. We've better linked within our state, but we're not linked elsewhere. Um, I don't think there's any part of the country that's really doing an A-plus job on infrastructure. You see energy experts come visit from Europe or Japan or elsewhere, and and they're appalled at how insufficient uh, our grid is. Um, What you do see in terms of where there's less risk this summer who might get by a little bit more easily is that much of the southeast and mid-Atlantic states, they operate their grids with a bigger buffer. They have more surplus capacity online, which gives them a little bit more confidence of, of not having any shortages this summer, but it comes with an extra cost because you can't store up power most of the time. And so the bigger and bigger buffers that you build, the more that power can cost. Daniel Cohan of Rice University, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. Pleasure to be with you. Here's your new host, Pat Sabin. 
1981, Pat Sajak started hosting Wheel of Fortune. As Jack mentioned, my name is Pat Sajak, and I've been fortunate enough to wander onto the set of a very successful program, has been for a long time. And the game show made him a household name. My own mom still watches the show today. And now, I'd like to announce that I'm leaving the show. No, just... Sajak may have been kidding back then, but just a few weeks ago, he did announce his retirement. He's got one more season up his sleeve, and then super host Ryan Seacrest will take over in 2024. To delve into why Will of Fortune holds such a special place in the hearts of many Americans, we turn to NPR's TV critic, Eric Deggins. So, can I buy a vowel? Or is it too early? That's, that's too early. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's I, too I, soon for that. It's too soon <laughs> for that. Um, so, first... Pat Sajak has been the host of Wheel of Fortune for over four decades. I mean, my whole entire life. Um, why is he leaving now? <laughs> I don't think he said a whole lot about why he wants to step down, but I think there's a sense that, you know, he's ready to leave working this high-profile job, and they moved pretty quickly to uh, name his replacement. So what made Pat Sajak such an American institution? Pat Sajak is just a really affable middle-class-looking white guy, and those are the kind of guys who were often hosts. And especially on Wheel of Fortune, I mean, you know, I know there are people out there who love the show, but basically you just have to be charming, you have to make the guests feel comfortable, and then it's a game of hangman, which is pretty simple. They are moving on, though, from Pat Sajak to Ryan Seacrest. What do you make of him as the new host? I feel like the hair is not, like, exactly the same as Pat Sajak, but they're both, like, sandy blondes, kind of. Kind of look. <laughs> <laughs> I can see yeah, a similarity, am I? <laughs> um, in one sense, I, I think this is another step in Ryan Seacrest's endless quest to become the modern version of Dick Clark, <laughs> who hosted everything from American Bandstand to award shows on television to New Year's Rocking Eve, which now Ryan Seacrest hosts. Of course, Seacrest's new position has brought renewed attention uh, to past allegations uh, back in 2017 and 2018, a former stylist for E! accused Seacrest of years of unwanted sexual aggression and said that he sexually harassed and assaulted her in various ways. He denied it, has consistently denied it. E! conducted an internal investigation and said they couldn't find uh, any evidence of it. Sajak has endorsed Ryan taking over for him, and in fact had even joked that Ryan Seacrest might take over for him, you know, before this was even announced. So all of this has a sense of a very well-mannered, well-staged transition that Sony is desperate to have in a show where people uh, want constancy. They want stability. Yeah. They want continuity, yeah. I mean, yeah. and which brings us to Vanna White, the show's right. longtime co-host. You know, she is the one who you know, presses the letters or at least points to them. Um, and, and then <laughs> she used was, to turn them back She in the used day, to turn them. Now, I do remember yeah. that. I remember, but now she can just touch them. Um, yeah. There was some grumbling that she should have been picked as the host. I mean, she is an institution just like, uh, you know, Pat Sajak. Yeah, and I think there's always a sense that maybe the show hasn't valued her as much as they should have. There's some reporting out there that suggests that Vanna White hasn't had a raise on the show for almost 20 years. I can certainly see why fans would want her to have a shot at hosting. Now, uh, we don't know if she actually wanted to do that. 
uh, or whether she wants to keep the job that she has. I think if Sony is smart, they'll back up the money truck and they'll keep her on the show because, you know, Ryan Seacrest will be enough of a difference. You don't want to send the message, even unintentionally, that as Ryan Seacrest comes, they have to eject Vanna White. That will upset, I think, a lot of fans of the show. Do you think that Ryan Seacrest will bring a new feel to the show? The question is, how strongly will Sony want to insist on not changing much or having changes that are mostly superficial? So far, they seem to have navigated it well. I think their next big challenge is getting Vanna White to sign on. And then their next big challenge after that is figuring out how much they might change things and whether Ryan Seacrest really has some revolutionary ideas about what he wants to do. Okay, but for right now, Patch Sajak and Vanna White will still be around for a little while longer. NPR's TV critic, Eric Deggins, thank you so much. All right, thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The mountains, lakes, deep woods, and rugged coastlines of Maine's Acadia National Park are home to more than 300 species of birds. Volunteers are making recordings to document the avian soundscape, which is changing quickly. Murray Carpenter of Maine Public has a story. At sunrise on a June morning, Laura Sebastianelli is starting off down a trail in Acadia National Park. She's wearing headphones and holding a big microphone that looks like a satellite dish about the diameter of a large pizza. Soon, she aims it in the direction of a warbler. So we actually were hearing two common yellow throats, and they're probably kind of countersinging. So it's one male telling the other male, this is my territory, and the other one saying, this is my territory. For six years, Sebastianelli's been taping the bird songs of Acadia, and she and her team have gathered over 1,200 recordings. She's caught songs that are emblematic of summer in the North Woods like the Swainson's thrush. And the white-throated sparrow. And rarer sounds like the call of the American bittern, a wetlands bird in steep decline. Climate change is adding urgency to the project as cold-loving species abandon Acadia and southern species arrive. We already know an example would be boreal chickadees. Used to breed in the park as late as the mid-90s. Seth Benz of the Skudik Institute is supporting the recording project. You can't find a breeding boreal chickadee in the park right now. Canada jays would come down and winter here. Can't find them anymore. The recordings are being archived at the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology where Jay McGowan says they're important specimens. How did this area sound before it was developed or before climate change, you know, drastically changed the habitat? So all of these uh, snapshots in time of the acoustic soundscape are potentially really valuable in ways that we have not yet understood. Sebastianelli's recordings also helped to supply Cornell's popular birding app Merlin, which helps identify bird species by their calls using a smartphone. Out on the trail, Sebastianelli runs into Teresa Kramer and Brian Chevalier, who say they've been using the app to identify bird songs on their hike and ask her to confirm their results. Well, it, there was the common raven, the magnolia warbler, and the black-throated green warbler. Does that sound right? All of them, yeah. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Great. Right. Awesome, yeah. 
Yeah. It, uh, we were definitely trying to listen for that scream of the common raven. A few minutes later, Sebastianelli stops to tape the calls of the raven, still echoing out over a salt marsh. <laughs> Back at the trailhead, Sebastianelli says it's like she's sending an audio postcard to future generations. Who knows what people are going to use this for? Who knows what education uh, projects? Is this going to be, you know, a point in time where like, oh, I wonder what Acadia National Park sounded like 50 years ago. <gasps> wow, how different, you know, who knows? For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. A Boston City Councilor is facing charges after she crashed a car into a house in Jamaica Plain Friday. Kendra Lara's seven-year-old son was in the car and needed to get stitches. A police report indicates that Lara was driving with a revoked license and was driving an unregistered and uninsured car with an expired inspection sticker. A police officer noted that Lara's son was not in a booster seat as required, and so police notified the Department of Children and Families. The city of Boston relaunches a Back Bay tradition today. Open Newberry Street offers a car-free pedestrian experience. It is scheduled for every Sunday through October 15th on Newberry Street. Keep in mind the Sumner Tunnel is about to close until the end of August. The tunnel that funnels traffic eastbound from East Boston and Logan Airport to downtown Boston is shutting down for major repairs. That closure begins at 12.01 a.m. this Wednesday. That's just after midnight, moments after a day full of Fourth of July celebrations. To get an understanding of your travel workarounds, go to WBUR.org. This afternoon in Toronto, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the Blue Jays. It's 68 degrees in Boston, some showers around, a chance of thunderstorms today, and highs in the mid-70s. Showers likely tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow with highs in the mid-80s. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said, how well can you spit? Ooh. And I just found it coming out of my mouth. I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From imaginable futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In Guatemala, the presidential election has just turned on its head. Against all predictions, a centrist left former professor and diplomat made it into the second round, which means the upcoming weeks promise to be full of political intrigue and negative campaigning, as Maria Martin reports. No one had seen this coming. Not the pollsters, nor the media, nor even his own supporters in the small reformist anti-corruption party called Semilla, SEED, which called on people to vote differently. Sixty-four-year-old Semilla standard bearer Bernardo Arevalo, the son of Guatemala's first democratically elected president, won 12 percent of the vote last Sunday, just a few points behind leading candidate Sandra Torres, who's supported by business and the ruling class. Arevalo says his unexpected second-place finish and the high number of blank and spoiled ballots indicated an overwhelming popular rejection of Guatemala's corrupt status quo. Una población que está cansada de un sistema político People are tired, he says, of a political system that only generates more poverty, more deterioration, and less democracy. Semilla's supporters were thought to be largely limited to urban Guatemala City, and the party had limited financial resources, says political analyst Juan Luis Font. They were driving their own cars. They didn't have the support of these big financial Guatemalan groups, and they just got it. Arevalo was able to fly under the radar since he wasn't seen as a threat to the establishment in an election that saw four candidates disqualified. Another plus, say analysts, was that he stuck to his anti-corruption message. Es que vamos a asesorarnos de la gente que más conoce cómo funciona la corrupción. Arevalo says he'll bring back anti-corruption judges and prosecutors in exile as advisors to help him develop his strategy. Arevalo's challenge in the next seven weeks before the runoff vote is to broaden his party's support outside urban areas, to reach out to the large number of voters who turned in spoiled ballots, and to get past the mushrooming negative campaigns on social media. Numerous posts like these paint Arevalo as a communist and a perpetrator of electoral fraud. Meanwhile, Arevalo's opponent, Sandra Torres, says he'd legalize abortion and gay marriage and destroy the country's social fabric. Don't let him mess with Guatemalan children and families, says Torres. But the negative campaigns appear to be working. Hairdresser Estela Mente says everyone at her salon says she should be afraid of Arevalo. Now she's confused. Meanwhile, there's a court challenge underway that may stop his candidacy, while the OAS and the EU are calling on Guatemala's government to respect the popular will. For NPR News... I'm Maria Martin. Albert Hammond Jr. wants you to know he's been going through some changes. The singer-songwriter recently released his fifth album, Melodies on Hiatus, 
We're not sure what kind of hiatus he had because while Hammond Jr. balanced his role as lead guitarist for The Strokes with his solo work, he also dealt with a big move in the middle of the pandemic. Albert Hammond Jr. joins us now. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us more about the changes that you've gone through while working on this album? <laughs> it's always a fine line between the interview and therapy. You know, I never know how much how much to give of myself. Now look, I am here for therapy. So no, I'm no, no. But it's not, it's not the that, listening it's, ear. I, I'm not the only one that exists <laughs> in my life, though, you know, so it's. Oh, yeah, I understand that. It affects other people. But yeah, I feel like if I really told everything that happened, then everything would make sense. But I don't know. I don't feel like I can do that. But what I was trying to say is they always want a bio or something. And I don't, I'd rather not say anything. I don't really. Mm. have any interest to explain anything or... You don't like to define the work. You like people to take from it what they will. I don't know what you can define, really. I feel like people want an answer, and there isn't one. Mm. I'm searching mm. for it as much as they are. There's something about music that can really affect you, that can hit you and change change your life and change how you see things and view things. And I think when you mix it with the right words, it could feel like, oh man, this person's talking to me or they must, they know something or I don't know. I mean, so much time has passed and there's so many like moments when you're writing the song. It's not like uh, I wrote everything in one day and I can explain every thought that I was thinking, you know? Sometimes it's just a craft. Well, I mean, when I was listening to it, and I do, I mean, it is very expansive. I felt like there was a theme of painful relationships in this album, like parent-children relationships, or children-parent, you know, relationships, like with Memo of Hate. This one, Memo of Hate, to me sounded like it came from a complicated relationship with a parent or a caretaker. Did you have that in mind or were you, it wasn't more, you were just creating? I mean, Memo of Hate, that was just the title of the voice memo. Like I have, I start everything starts with a voice memo. I just liked, it seemed cool to talk about hate. <laughs> um, it's just an interesting emotion. I think sometimes, in writing anything, it can feel relationship-esque because that's something very universal. So even if you're talking about other things, they can, people can understand them and relate to them in that dynamic. A lot of times I feel like I'm more talking about myself or things I've experienced with my own feelings. Just like Old Man wasn't like, it's not like a song I wrote to my dad or something. It's just that it's a saying. When you can describe a conversation 
with a father. People understand that. And when you describe that in the sense of like, wow, as you get older, you realize that you can't really point your finger because you end up doing similar things as things you didn't like, you know, or things you thought you'd be different. And so like, but how do you just talk about that randomly? It seems more exciting to speak about it in a conversation. Does being a parent yourself make you have more empathy? Because, you know, you can be very like judgmental about, like you said, whether you're thinking about your parents or not, like, I'm not going to be this way. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But sometimes in general, life will humble you. Of course. things you thought you knew. Of course, that's the, you don't know until you do it. And then you have a deeper understanding. Whether you would do it differently or not doesn't matter. You just like, you understand yes. that people are really just doing the best with what they have or what they can or where they're at. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk to you about All Right Tomorrow. I mean, I feel like that song is the last track and it's with Rainsford. And it's like, sonically, I feel like it sounds, I, I would say almost softer. Rain comes down His socks and shoes are wet right To me, it sounds almost a little bit like a lullaby, but it definitely sounds like, you know, almost something like you would say to a child, like, it's going to be all right. Now, I know you just came to this creatively and wasn't necessarily thinking about that as the goal, but did you get a sense of that after it all came together? When I wrote the melody, I knew I just, there's no way I was going to sing this. <laughs> I, I saw it as like something cinematic. Like I saw it as like rainbow connection at the, you know, like, John Denver, like something in a, in, a, in a movie. And so I was just like, I knew I, I wanted to find a female voice. And uh, yeah, I just, Rainey's voice is beyond incredible. Obviously you put the music out there and people can take from it what they will. But like now that this music is out there, like what has the response that you've been receiving? And you know, do you feel like people are receiving the music the way you would like them to? I don't know how to gauge that, to be honest. Uh, I guess time. I think when it comes out, you can fully move on. There's a little bit. I handed it in a year ago, so I find it a f uh, so funny that you end up two people that you're putting stuff out. You're you're showing them a past version. Like you're already someone else by the time people hear your music. That is Albert Hammond Jr. His latest album, Melodies on Hiatus, is out now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. He was an unforgettable figure on the streets of San Francisco, an icon of the city's skateboarding community. Zion Williams Gaines was a teenager when he was shot in the face, blinding him in both eyes. But it didn't stop him from doing the sport he loved, riding his board with the white stick by his side. Two weeks ago, Zion died in his sleep just a few days shy of his 21st birthday. One of those who knew Zion best was his friend Andrew Caulfield, a photographer and fellow skater, also known as Ando in the skateboarding community. I caught up with him recently, and he told me just how lucky he felt to know Zion. 
I can't really ever think of a time that that he wasn't positive. You know, even after his accident, I think I spoke with him maybe five days after his accident, and he sounded exactly the same. I mean, just you know, asking me about skating, when we could go skating, and yeah, I mean, he was just like a very energetic, youthful, amazing kid, and he loved skateboarding, and he loved San Francisco, and he loved his friends. You know, you talk about after after the shooting that left him blind. I mean, you would think that that would have been incredibly difficult for him, but but you're saying that he was positive, like even then, even at just after it happened. You know, in in our community, there is a handful of blind skateboarders who have excelled in the sport and have done quite well. But a majority of them had progressive disease that led to blindness. So it was like a transition for them. With Zion, it was a little different. I mean, he just was blind one day after being shot. But he just, that was his main focus. And um, he really inspired me, you know. He inspired me to like, kind of take a look around my world and to realize like, hey man, we can all push through these things, these little things that we deal with if he could do deal with this stuff. How do you skate when you can't see? You know, I obviously I don't know because I'm not blind, but watching him skate, you know, he used his cane quite a bit and he kind of felt out their area around him. One of the interesting things that I saw him do that I thought was really, really special was he had a speaker with music playing and he told me like, Oh, put the speaker like this certain distance. Cause I can hear where it's bouncing off of like the ledge that he was trying to skate. So he was using sound a little bit and he was using his cane and I think just pure like memory a little bit of how it felt to skate when he had sight, he was just determined to push himself. He didn't really have any fear and just, seeing what happens, you know? Do you have a favorite memory of Zion? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, There was, like, this trick he was trying to do years ago, a couple years ago. It was before his accident. And I was living in... I I had been living in Spain for a couple years, and so he kept hitting me up to take a photo of it, but I was living in another country. But his, like, determination to get this trick what I thought was so cool. Did he get the trick that he was trying to... to... He, he did. He did. Yeah, he got it. He got it with a... He got it and he filmed it, I believe. And then he took a photo with a, a fellow photographer in San Francisco named Ted Mater. Is there anything that you just want everyone to know about Zion? Oh, man. You know, I think the number one thing I, I could say is that he was he was honestly one of the most positive people I've ever met in my life. And you know, he, he's inspired me to, to be a little bit more positive and I hope everybody else as well. Um, you know, difficult things happen to all of us and, um, it just, there's always a way through it, you know, and he, he's proof of that. You know, he, he had one of the most difficult things happen to him ever in life and he pushed right through it. And, you know, he was on the verge of making his, making, kind of making his dreams come true. It's, it's so, you know, I wish people could. I wish more people could have met him because he was such a positive soul. I mean, he was such an incredible human being. So that's Andrew Caulfield, a friend of Zion Williams Gaines, a blind skateboarder who died last month. Thank you so much for being with us and telling us about your friend. Thank you so much.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. Listening to WBUR is a great way to follow the news. Another great option, checking your inbox each weekday morning. WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. 68 degrees in Boston, some showers around today, and a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. Former Obama speechwriter Sarah Hurwitz grew up in what she calls a culturally Jewish home. But it wasn't until her 30s that she found deeper meaning in her childhood faith. This was the first time I was exposed to the other 99.999999% of Judaism. And I thought, where has this been all my life? I'm Scott Detrow, finding spirituality where least expected. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.